going to go ahead and get started. Welcome, welcome to the few of you who are here in the room and those of you at home. I hope you're doing well. We are in the season of Epiphany, which is this time where we tell these fascinating stories about Christ's life. And then we ask basically two questions. What is being revealed here about the world and me and God and all of it? And then how should we respond to that? So, so we agree in Epiphany to make some changes in light of what we learned from the text. And today we're doing sort of the second half of the story we began last week from Luke chapter 4. But first, I want to introduce you to a couple of guys. This is Tom and Greg. Um, any Succession fans in the room? Okay, at least a couple. So they are two characters on the HBO series called Succession, which is this fictional yet sober, sobering and terrifying look at what it's like to be an American billionaire. Um, and the show is, is touted for its many triumphs, not the least of which is its honest portrayal of how warped and twisted the lives of the uber-wealthy have become in our time. And what's so interesting to me about Tom and Greg is that they were not born million, billionaires. They were, um, Tom, Tom married a billionaire uh, daughter. Greg's billionaire grandfather gave his fortune to Greenpeace. So Greg has to work for his billionaire co cousins. And, and so neither of these guys were born into this kind of wealth. They, so they have to learn how to be billionaires. This bizarre, you know, the often horrifying habits of, the, the, of extreme privilege. And succession lets us watch as they slowly become kind of terrible people. Um, Tom is older. He's been at it a few more years. So he, he makes Greg into his protege um, and teaches him how to billionaire. And there's this scene where Greg, the younger, has gotten his first paycheck. And Tom asks him. It's a massive payout for this kid. And he's like, how do how you use this? How are you going to celebrate? And Greg said, I was thinking about maybe going to, have you ever visited the California Pizza Kitchen? To which Tom says, no, dear Lord, no. Um, and Greg says, it's pretty delicious, Tom. And Tom says, no, it isn't, Greg. I mean, you might think it's delicious, but it, it tastes delicious, but it doesn't. And Greg says, they make a Cajun chicken linguine just how I like it. <laughs> and Tom says, but that's not how you're supposed to like it. You probably have an undereducated palate. And then he says, so let's go out, and I'll teach you, and I'll show you how to be rich. And so Tom takes his protege, Greg, to this ostentatious restaurant where they order ethically dubious food that you can only eat while draping a napkin over your head to mask the shame. And then they end up at this posh nightclub, totally exclusive, and they're led through the crowd up to this balcony. A bouncer pulls back the little velvet rope, and they go into this exclusive section overlooking the entire club, and they're the only ones allowed into this little area. And so it's a, it's a club full of, you know, fabulous, beautiful, like, interesting folks, but instead of, like, dancing with them or interacting with people in any way, they just stand up above them in this exclusive section and do, you know, the white man overbite, right, where you kind of just prove that you can't dance looking down on everybody from above. 
as everybody else talks and dances and has time. And, and Greg's confused by this. He asked Tom. He's like, so hey, this is what you do? You like come to a club and then come to like this other part where the club sort of isn't? And Tom says, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's what you do. Greg offers at one point to go get uh, him a drink from the bar. And Tom says, no, I ordered bottle service. And these two supermodels come and serve them privately. And, and then um, Tom says, this is 2,000 bucks a pop. And Greg says, why? And Tom says, no reason. We're being totally ripped off. I'm not kidding. This is the dialogue in, in the show. And Tom then explains that there are actually little flecks of gold leaf in the drink, like 24 karat gold. They're drinking gold in this, in this drink. And then what they do next is they just stand together awkwardly. And you realize as you watch, they have not come to this club to enjoy the dancing. They're not dancing. They're just kind of standing there watching. And they're not there to enjoy the drinks. They're already, they've already said they're getting ripped off on the drinks. And they're not there to enjoy the conversation. The music is so loud, they can't really hear each other. They have to scream, and then they, they miss some things. What they're there to enjoy is the exclusivity. That's it. They are in the billionaire's club, which is not just a ticket into the exclusive club. They have a ticket into the exclusive section above the exclusive club where they can just go and literally enjoy being above everyone else, even the posh crowd in an exclusive New York City nightclub. So I, I don't tell you this to condone this by behavior by any means, but rather just to illustrate the fact that there is something about the human condition that seems to place value on exclusivity. The more exclusive something is, the more value it's often given. I think I've talked about this place before. It's called the Yellowstone Club. It's a completely private ski resort in Montana. It costs $300,000 just to join and then $37,000 a year in dues. And if you want to stay overnight there, you have to build your own house. Um, which starts at about $10 million a piece, although don't worry, there's a condo you can buy for $5 million. So if you were worried, you can, you can just do that. Um, you fly into Bozeman, take a helicopter up to the resort, and they want all the members to feel pampered at all times, so on any given day, the employees always outnumber the guests. Like 500 workers to just, you know, a few dozen people, maybe 100, 150 people, and their families. And so this is where folks like Bill Gates or Eric Schmidt, the Google guy, or Justin Timberlake or Tom Brady, as though you need another reason to despise him, or Phil Mickelson or Ben Affleck, this is where they go to ski. And the weird thing is, um, the, the, run, the ski runs themselves aren't like amazing. I mean, they're fine, but any Colorado resort probably has better snow and better ski runs. They're not paying for the quality of the skiing. They're paying for the exclusivity. It's maybe 500 people total have access to, to this place. It's the most ex exclusive ski resort in the world. That's what they're paying for. Now, if you're like me, you're feeling very judgy right now, right? You think about this stuff, and you're like, this is ridiculous. What a waste. I mean, you can take the money they spend in a, a month here and end homelessness in like 10 cities. Uh, but Check yourself, because there is like an almost 
hypnotizing allure to exclusivity. It's, it's really strange the way we're drawn to it. I mean, a few years ago, a friend told me about his, this country club that his father belonged to. He was, kind of, he was a little embarrassed by, by it. And he said it was this super kind of pristine, like exclusive, men's only golf course. And uh, the course is just incredible. But it's, it's, it's bougie, it's pre pretentious, and it's like an old boys club. In fact, if a woman was to play there, she has to be accompanied by a man. And um, so he's telling me this, I'm like, hmm. And totally judging him the whole time. And then I go home and tell my wife, Kristen, and I'm like, can you imagine going to a club like that? And then this friend called and said, hey, you want to go golfing at my dad's fancy golf course? To which I said, do I have to wear a collared shirt? Right? And this is the allure of exclusivity. I'm like judging it, and then they're like, you're in, and I'm like, hey, I am in. Let me see if I remember how to tuck in my shirt. Um, and this is it. We're just all susceptible to exclusionary behaviors because the more exclusive something is, the more value we place on it. And this is just part of the human condition. There's this study they did at Harvard, this famous study where they chose, um, they had people choose one of two options. Option A, you make $50,000, everyone else makes $25,000. Or option B, you make $100,000, but everybody else makes $200,000. And of course, the majority always chooses option A. They would, they would rather get 50,000 less dollars as long as they can make more than everybody else. That's the value of exclusivity. We get just more psychological enjoyment from exclusivity than almost anything else. Now, if it's like fine dining or nightclubs or ski resorts or thought experiments, who cares, right? It's like a personal problem, but of course, this draw toward exclusivity helps determine the way that we organize the world and our societies and, and, and our structures and our institutions. And part of why um, people respond favorably, um, favorably to things like when a politician um, calls immigrants rapists and murderers or, or when, like now, they keep refugees at the border and won't even let them sniff some kind of relief or or use rhetoric about, you know, who's real Americans and who's, who's not. It works. It works. Exclusivity works. Because there's something about being part of an exclusive group and keeping other people out that raises the value of belonging to that group. And this can easily grow into persecution, into injustice and violence. Um, th this is by the way, the first step in every progression toward genocide that we, has ever happened in the history of the world. And so this is one of those problems that kind of catches us all in its net. And it's a problem with nearly all political systems, including our own. It's just really hard to organize people around inclusivity. There's just not as much natural enjoyment with inclusion as there is with exclusion. And so in our world, almost all political systems sort of pretend that they're organized around the idea of the good, you know, the common good, the good of all. But there's sort of this one nagging question that almost unravels every single one of them, and the question is just simply, good for whom? Almost no political system or leader 
pursues the good of the whole. They pursue the good for a portion of the whole, for an exclusive group that has exclusive privileges within society. And throughout history, one of the most popular methods for doing this has been religious exclusivity, and in particular, religious nationalism. And this is part of the tension that's living in our story for today. If you remember when we left off last week, Jesus was teaching in his hometown synagogue. He had been preaching and healing all over Galilee. And when he came to his hometown, this was an exclusive event, like the the favorite son here to teach. And we read last week that Jesus um, did the reading from Isaiah 61. And um, it's from the prophets. So they focused on the prophets sort of the way we focus on the gospel. It was this source of great hope about the future. And so Jesus would have read the text in Hebrew, and then he would have taught in Aramaic, their everyday language. And his audience, as he's teaching, considered themselves part of this exclusive club called Israel. And it was a holy nation, right? A royal priesthood, this exclusive group. Now, they had fallen hard times in the last centuries, for sure. But Jesus was reading this text that promised good news to the poor, and release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, this idea of jubilee, this once-in-a-lifetime event where all debts are forgiven, all slaves were freed, and all of the land went back to the ancestral family. It was this moment of kind of system-wide grace. That's the year of jubilee. And, And to folks who were daily humiliated by the kind of Roman slash Gentile occupation, this was a source of great hope for them. But then Jesus did something that would have been very confusing for them. He read Isaiah 61, and in the original text, it promises Messiah will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, this jubilee, and the day of vengeance for our God. But when Jesus reads this in Luke, he leaves off the day of vengeance for our God. He just doesn't read that part. And they would have recognized this because, for one thing, they knew the text, but for another thing, they really wanted vengeance on their oppressors. And so they had to be wondering, like, why did he say the last part? Like, it's kind of our favorite part of this. Why didn't you say it? And then it says, he sat down and all eyes were upon him, and he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. So he's promising jubilee now it's happening. I'm announcing it. And then we're told... All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Now, um, in, our, in the English translations, it seems like they're enjoying this and, uh, at first, but in the, in the Greek, it's actually neutral. You can't really tell. It just says something like, they witnessed him and marveled at his gracious words. And we don't know if they're marveling like in a good way or in a bad way. Um, Because after all, then they say, isn't this just Joseph's son? Which isn't usually like a good thing. Um, So which is it? Well, if you remember, just a little context, all four of the Gospels have like a big question that the writer sort of focuses on. Like for Mark, the big question is, what is Jesus doing? For um, Matthew, it's what is Jesus saying? So it has like the whole Sermon on the Mount. For, For Luke, the big question is, who is Jesus? That's what he's focusing on. It's about his identity. And so here you have people saying, isn't this Joseph's son? And and we should immediately think, well, that's kind of not quite right. I mean, we're reading Luke here. The first 
few chapters of Luke are all about his birth story explaining this divine origin. This isn't just Joseph's sons. There's something more going on here. Like God is working in Christ to change things. He's bringing, declaring jubilee. And so they're having a reaction to his teaching. We're not really sure if it's negative or positive, um, but, but we're going to see. Um, Jesus, it says, said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. This is like a common parlance. It's sort of like saying that's the pot calling the kettle black. And it could, could mean one of two things. It could be like saying, we know this. This is Jesus, Joseph's kid, you know, from down the block. We know what this dude is like. If he's going to be the doctor, he better start with himself. Or it could be that I think the more likely option is something like, if you're starting a revolution for Israel, why not start right here in your hometown? Heal, heal yourself. Either way, they weren't clear yet what he was actually saying at this point. And so there would probably be some like nervous laughter. And then he says, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Um, Luke just told us he was healing and doing miracles in Capernaum. So maybe they want to, you know, put on a little show here in Nazareth, do some tricks that could brag about their hometown boy, the prophet. It's a pretty exclusive club. And then he says, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. So, okay, so they're, they would no longer be laughing at this point. They're frowning. Like, what's he doing? He's, he's turning, into, turning us into his enemies. And, and then Jesus says something that really, when you first read it, seems completely out of left field. Let me read this. I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And they were, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So he's, he's mentioning these two stories from the Hebrew Bible. The first is from 1 Kings 17. It's that um, time during the famine when Elijah was the prophet, and he's running from Ahab and Jezebel. And he's starving in the wilderness, and he happens upon this widow in the land of Zarephath. And she was down to like her last handful of flour and just a little bit of oil. Remember, she's going to bake it into a cake, feed it to she and her son, and then wait to die. Um, but instead, she bakes it and gives it to the prophet. And um, she does this, by the way, as an outsider of the exclusive group that was the people of God. And so... This pagan, outsider, excluded woman gives Elijah the bread. And from that day on, the flour and the oil just never um, expired. It was replenished every day. She'd reach for that last handful, and it would just always be there. There was always more. God always sustained her because of her generosity toward the prophet, who was not from around there and was part of a group that she was on the outside of. And yet God included her in these blessings of Jubilee. It's kind of a Jubilee story. There's always enough. There's always food for everyone. And no doubt there were many widows in Israel, folks who were part of the exclusive club who were starving, but the prophet didn't go to them. The prophet went to this widow in Zarephath. 
Do you remember that story? Does that ring, ring a bell? Okay, so they remembered it too. So they're not happy. The next story is from 2 Kings 5. It's about Naaman, the great general of the Syrian army. Syria was their biggest threat at this time. Um, Naaman was a great warrior, um, but he contracted leprosy. And he had captured this little Israelite girl and married her. And she told Naaman, this prophet Elijah can heal you. And so Naaman brought all this gold in a letter, brought it to Israel's king and said, let your prophet heal me. Israel's king just freaks out because he thinks he's entrapping him. He won't be able to heal him and then he can have a cause for war. Elijah comes and says, tells the king to basically stop being a baby. Send Naaman to me. Elijah tells Naaman, go wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be healed, which he does and he is. And so this, this is a story. As soon as he mentions Naaman, they would know this story of this Israelite king who's in a pretty exclusive club but he's freaking out, full of anxiety. And then a pagan general named Naaman is counted in on God's blessing and made whole. And no doubt, he's right. Many in, in Israel had leprosy, but Elisha doesn't heal them. He heals this pagan general, an outsider. And so you can kind of see why people were not happy about what he was saying. He's saying, basically, jubilee, grace, God's salvation is not for those who are part of our little exclusive club. This is, this is good news for the left out and the left behind, for the foreigners, the immigrants, the marginalized, the sick, the widows, the orphans. Jesus is, is saying, yeah, I'm a prophet, all right, but you're not going to like what I'm saying. And in fact, all the people in the synagogue, it says, were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. And then it says, and there's kind of the connotation of the mystical here, he, he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. And to get this, I think you kind of have to try to put yourself in their situation. They were, they were the poor. They were persecuted. Their life was pretty rough, especially when the Romans were around. Now the prophet shows up in their hometown, but his good news isn't just for them. It's not exclusive to them. It's for them, but it's, it's a good news of grace, of jubilee, of restoration for the strugglers, and it's not coming just to the exclusive Jewish club. It's for everybody. And he's essentially telling them, he's extending this grace, this jubilee, to their oppressors too, including the ones they, they wanted vengeance upon. You see, the message that Jesus proclaims, it's called, we talked about this last week, euvangelion, gospel. But it's weird because it can be received as either good news or bad news, depending on where you stand. Same message, same gospel, but depending on your disposition when you hear it, it can be good or bad news. The good news is, God's mission is just to draw near to the brokenhearted, like indiscriminately, in whatever form that takes. It's just sheer, lavish, unceasing grace. This is, this is the good news. And it's inclusive, which diminishes its value for those who bank on exclusivity. And so kind of the bad news is, those who are unable to allow other unworthy people to share in God's love are themselves unable to receive it. And this is, we talk about Epiphany as revelation and response. This is a stunning revelation. 
That's why they try to kill him. Because God's love is not exclusive. You guys know my hero, one of my heroes is Rich Mullins. He used to say this, I heard him say it multiple times. He'd say something like, I grew up hearing everyone tell me God loves you. And I would say, big deal, God loves everybody. That don't make me special, that just proves God ain't got no taste. And he was using poor English on purpose. To, for, like even the, uneduc- the worker who, does, who says ain't all the time, right? That's what Jesus is trying to tell them. God ain't got no taste. Thank God. God's love is not exclusive. And if you try to make it exclusive, if you try to possess it for yourselves, it just slips right through your fingers. It can only just be received or not. It cannot be hoarded or controlled or kept to ourselves. And this is a revelation about the nature of God and of God's kingdom. And it is, in this story, a pointed critique of Jewish nationalism that all of them understood. They weren't just offended for themselves. They were offended on behalf of the Jewish people. They don't say this stuff. We're, we're the apple of God's eye, right? So they're they're offended on behalf of the Jewish nation. And Jesus is moving against it. And I think that we should see this as a move not just against Jewish nationalism, but today against Christian nationalism in our own society. Jesus just does not allow that kind of exclusivity in the kingdom or among his followers. Because those who are unable to allow other unworthy people to share in God's love are themselves just unable to receive it. They don't see it as love or grace. They see it as a problem that diminishes their exclusivity and so they get mad and try to kill them. And here's the thing. The danger is always to say, those bad guys there in Nazareth. But we have to figure out who's the problem in the story and then include ourselves in that problem because... We all do this. We all draw so much more pleasure and enjoyment from exclusivity than inclusivity. And we're just constantly tempted to slice up the world into like people that I like who are like me and are therefore good and people I don't like who are not like me and are therefore bad. And Jesus is saying God's plan for jubilee, for grace, is for all humankind, even our sworn enemies. And if, if we're honest, it galls us a little. There are people I want to see get punished. I would like to see vengeance meted out to some others. And Jesus is like, no, nah, my grace, it's for everyone. And really, the only way to miss out on it is to wield God's grace like a weapon against our enemies and make God's grace exclusive. This is one of those weird parts of following Jesus and taking seriously um, both his actions and his teachings for the deeper meaning. I mean, he just walked around trying to identify the people we want to exclude from the kingdom, and he'd go stand with the outcasts. It's offensive by design. He's doing it on purpose. He's trying to bother us, right? He was with grace to a bunch of exclusive people who wanted status. He was like Oprah on Christmas. He's like, you get some grace, and you get some grace, and you get grace. It was offensive. And that kind of lavish inclusion 
It, it really bothers people who get off on exclusivity. And if the value of being a Christian is that it puts us in some exclusive category, then we have missed it altogether. We have no idea what we're talking about. And if we're there, Jesus means to offend us. Barbara Taylor once wrote this. I know I share it a lot, but I'm just going to keep saying it until you can say it from memory. Christ is not the only one, or not only the one who comforts us and rescues us, the Christ is also the one who challenges and upsets us, telling us the truth so clearly that we will do appalling things to make him shut up. And, and so the moment um, Jesus denied them their exclusivity, he went from favorite son to like, let's kill him. Because they had an exclusivity problem. As if um, the fact that God's love is not exclusive um, somehow made it less valuable. And if we're honest, um, hopefully we can admit this, this story makes us a little twitchy. Um, both to learn that our enemies are God's friends somehow. It's tough to swallow. But also that we like exclusivity. We want vengeance for the bad guys, and we want to see ourselves as good. And, and this attitude, honestly, in the kingdom, the way he presents it, it's not a problem for them. It's a problem for us. Because those who are unable to allow other unworthy people to share in God's love are themselves unable to receive it. And Jesus, he seemed to, to know the only way to counteract this exclusivity thing is to try to teach us how to love. And so he said, just blatantly, love your enemies. you got to love them. Because if, if you can't stand loving um, God, loving those that you despise, then you'll probably end up trying to run Jesus off a cliff. And we are Christians, which, which means that we claim no exclusive rights on grace. I mean, if you think about it, just the big movement of it, Jesus came to remove the barriers between humanity and God, so we do not get to build them back up. We can either learn to live in, in the same radical grace, like learn to love those who are excluded from every exclusive thing, in which case people will flock to us like they flock to Jesus, or we can try to control him, as many Christians do, and control access, which, you know, is a, in a sense trying to kill his ministry by possessing it for ourselves, in which case he will just pass right through our midst and go on his way. That's the logic of the story. And so this is revelation, and our job is to respond. We have to decide if we want to be part of this kind of a kingdom. And if we do, we have to sort of go to work on this desire for exclusivity. And if we don't, if we don't want that deal, we can't take part in the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace, and it's just reckless in its indiscriminate nature. It's for the losers and, and the strugglers. It is not an exclusive club. There is no special status that can help us here, and so it's hard for us sometimes to see its value. But our righteousness is, like Paul said, is, it's filthy rags. Our religious pedigree is unimpressive. If we want to be part of the kingdom, we have to pursue inclusivity 
And um, the best way to do this, I think, is, is to commit to being paired with the outcasts in any situation. Since my kids were very little, we would tell them this, like, where, wherever you are, find the kid who's left out. Go find him and be their friend. That's where, that's where God is at work in the world. And it's true for all of us. And I think this is what this story places before us. And we can include and be reconciled. We can include the disavowed other in our community. And, and this is kind of where I'll close. Part of why he's trying to do this is it, maybe if we can learn how to include the disavowed other into our group, maybe we'll start to learn how to include the disavowed pieces of ourselves to admit them and welcome them back in and let them be redeemed and meet with God's jubilee, God's grace. I mean, this is for our good. This is for our healing. But these disavowed pieces of ourselves, you guys, it's, it's what's killing us. It is at the root of all of the pain we inflict on each other in the world. And if we'll learn to do it with somebody else, maybe we can learn to do it you know, expose the disavowed pieces of ourselves to that same reckless love of God. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, we know that um, we despise in others only what we despise in ourselves, that we exclude each other because we just don't want to be reminded of how hard it is to be human and how um, we all fall short of being fully human. And we struggle in so many ways, ways that everybody can see, ways that only we can see, and ways that we just hide from ourselves. So I just pray that we would um, embrace this revelation of the kingdom of God is inclusive and that we would plant a flag in our life and say this is, this is how it has to be let go of any exclusive notion of Christianity is about in and out and just say I want to be in on God's love and mercy and so I'll extend it to others maybe even to myself. I pray that's our story, oh God. And we're grateful that you give us this grace, this um, endless second chances. Amen. We invite you to receive communion now, and for those of us in the room, we'll receive it um, here. But if you're at home, um, grab something that you can um, call communion. And um, if you would just um, hold it, somebody can hold it kind of in, in your group and we'll play, pray a blessing on it in a moment. Um, we do this because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and blessed it and broke it and passed it out to his guys and said, this is my body broken for you. And then after supper, he did the same thing with the cup. He blessed it, and they all drank from the same cup, and he said, this um, 
this cup is a new covenant in my blood that meant a new deal, a new relationship between humanity and God established in the life of, and death of Christ. He said, so whenever you get together, eat this bread, drink this cup, remember my life given for you, and even the symbolism is take, this, take my life into your life. Be made of the stuff I'm made of. And he said, whenever you get together, do this. And so this is why we receive communion. And just invite anybody who calls on the name of Christ to join us in the meal. So I would invite you, if you're at home, to pray a blessing on um, your, the elements for your communion as we do that here as well. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?